Welcome to the MHI Cast, the show where we talk to the industry's best minds to uncover their supply chain stories. We explore real-world case studies and get unique perspectives on key trends and emerging technologies from every corner of the material handling, logistics, and supply chain space. Today, we're talking about the ever-increasing need for cybersecurity in modern supply chains. And our first guests are Jim Barnes from Invista and Sebastian Tietza from Boimer Group. Thank you both for being with us today. And um, I can tell you that both of these companies offer cloud-based solutions, which is the subject of a lot of present-day cybersecurity anxiety for supply chain operators. Jim, let's start with you today. Uh, Can you help paint a picture for us? and, And what are some of the concerns? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, cybersecurity, data security is a massive issue today. Uh, I mean, there's never, you know, you just read, you can read the Wall Street Journal or New York Times regarding somebody having a data breach. Um, there's always going to be threats, right? It's, it's never going to stop. You know, one must assume that these threats are not only going to continue, but that they will grow as the world becomes increasingly digitized. Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at the mobile phone, right, I mean, regardless uh, our friend Steve Jobs, right, bless his soul, did a phenomenal job by creating a thing that was a mobile device um, that's no longer a phone, right? It's really a way we can move information. Now, I will tell you, um, this will probably obsolete in the next 10 or 15 years, right? We'll start using metadata uh, where surfaces will actually be responsive. Like, for example, this mic will be responsive. I mean, it, I mean we're moving to a world uh, that will move beyond the phone. I won't go into really, I think, the future of where the innovation is going to come from. But the reality is we are in a mobile environment. We are stuck to it, right? I always laugh about my child. I think it's an appendage. He's 14 years old and his phone is almost an appendage. I can't get away. I can't get it away from him. So we're not going to move away from mobile computing, I think, the next 10 or 15 years. But, but the reality is, is that the phone itself is giving us access to data and information. We move more data today than we've ever moved in the history of our, of our lifetime, right? And so you have access to information that you've never had access to before. And it's quite frankly the way that business is being done because of the, of the accessibility of that data on that darn device called an iPhone or your Samsung today. So um, it's gonna continue, uh, but I think we're gonna see the dependencies on, the, on, on phones start to dissipate as we start to move to a universe of what we call metadata and how uh, metadata today is being used in the future. It's going to be interesting. Interesting is right, and, and, and quite frankly, it sounds a little ominous, but it's all going to be worth it, right? Uh, how about you, Sebastian? What do you think? We can't deny, of course, that every time uh, when data is processed uh, and potentially clouds are involved, that there are risks to that. It's my viewpoint, though, that the risks of real-time data analytics are actually fairly low, And I'll explain what I mean. Um, First of all, data analytics are usually uh, only accessing information that have already been produced uh, in some uh, way or form. In Boimer's case, we are only working with log files. This is important because this means that we don't have a direct effect on the operation of the machine. So nothing that data analytics does even if it's real time, can accidentally cause the machine to produce a failure or anything at this point. Because we're only accessing data of things that have already happened, even if they've only happened one or two seconds ago. Um, 
Secondly, of course, the information that we're analyzing is machine data. Um, so, you, you know, many companies, of course, are afraid of uh, a data leak. Now, we have to keep in mind, this is machine data. It doesn't include, uh, you know, personal data, behavioral data or anything uh, necessarily. So um, the, the, the sensitivity is slightly lower. But I don't want to downplay it. It is still critical operational information. So we have to make sure to keep it secure. And that is a critical point of data security that we are trying to constantly improve on. So whenever you extract data from a machine, you need some type of a little access point to get that data off the machine, right? Because the risk of storing it on a machine, slowing down other processes is too high. So you want to get the data of the machine and store it somewhere where it's more secure. Um, so creating this access point uh, for an automated process to pull the data off the machine presents a risk. But even there over the years, there has been a lot of advancement and there's now technologies that uh, ensure that data can only flow one direction and that data uh, is also that that the the accessing uh, component or process is authorized to do so. Um, the other point that we need to keep in mind is for data analytics, uh, a lot of the processes are automated because we're talking of hundreds of thousands of lines of data every minute. With, with this being uh, automated, the risk already is much lower because the highest information security risk in any company are humans. Those are the people that make mistakes by um, revealing passwords where they aren't supposed to, executing files maybe that are insecure. So data analytics basically eliminates that human component and uh, automatically authorizes, authenticates all the requests to process data. The human factor that usually presents one of the biggest information security risks is um, taken out. That is absolutely correct. The human element, and that's absolutely something we should be digging a little bit more into. Uh, we're joined also by John Cilio. He's a cybersecurity expert that devotes a lot of his time to education. John, thanks for being with us. What what should companies be doing to minimize the risk of a breach stemming from their workforce? I think if you take a look at a company's footprint, digital footprint, if you're looking at websites that are even five years old in technology, that's a red flag. If you're looking at companies who haven't already started a comprehensive phishing training program or social engineering training, if they're not already there and haven't been working on it for several years, they're way behind. Um, if you've got a board meeting that's taking place and there is not a cybersecurity executive in the room with authority, you're behind. If there's a board meeting that takes place and cybersecurity isn't one of the things that's reported on quarterly, where are we? Where are we going? What's our plan? What's not working? You're behind. Um, there's all kinds of red flags showing that we are not keeping up. And of course, it's a, it's a budget problem, it's a buy-in problem, and it's a human element. That's really why it has to start. It starts almost every case with a strong executive team, a strong CEO. If she comes to the table and says, listen, um, this is important to me, 
Here's why it's important. Personally, this is important to our company. The entire culture right there of the company starts to change. Are there any more red flags we should be cognizant of? I think there's two answers to the biggest red flags I see. Number one, it's the company who hasn't heeded any of the warnings because they think their industry doesn't get hit, they're not part of it, it's not going to happen to them. They don't house personally identifiable information, social security numbers, credit card numbers, and yet they house all of this intellectual property and emails and everything else. That's one. The other side is the company who has taken a lot of steps and they think they're there. They think they have arrived. We call it set and forget. They implement all of this. Something doesn't happen for a year and they don't renew. They don't retrain. They don't figure, hey, disinformation was not even on the docket last year and IOT wasn't on it two years ago and ransomware wasn't on it four years ago. It's constantly changing and they don't update. That's a huge red flag. If I can go into a company and somebody hasn't talked about um, you know, industrial control systems or hasn't talked about ransom worms versus ransomware, we know, listen, they think they've got it covered. They're back in the risk factor. Okay, it's clear that training is a critical element. What kind of best practices can you share in that department? One of the, the best practices that I see in forward-thinking companies is kind of this gamification and, and incentivization of good behavior. So when there is a success, when you, when you go for some time without a breach, without, you know, it's like a, in a uh, aluminum factory, you know, if nobody gets burned, they put the number of days up. Well, the same can go for cybersecurity. If you haven't had a, a major breach or data leakage or you're not in the news um, and you give people bonuses or you make a game out of it. I've seen a game made out of phishing, you know, out of uh, an anti-phishing campaign that makes it so much more successful. So part of what we're all trying to do is, you know, we've got we've to attract millennials to this. We've got to speak in terms that aren't, you know, from, from our generation and, and make sure that we're educating in new ways. That, to me, is a, a best practice that gets missed all the time. We just tend to punish, punish, punish when something happens. Yeah, I like that idea. Uh, how about you, Sebastian? Any training best practices you want to add? I think, actually, it's more than just training it is uh, education straight on. So we're seeing nowadays also in our industry, um, people joining with completely different backgrounds of education than maybe a few decades ago. So um, having, being open to hire uh, people outside of our traditional backgrounds uh, of say, the mechanical and electrical engineering that we're used to is critical to get started. So consider, you know, working maybe together with universities, with different programs to get access to those people that have a, a data engineering background, a data scientific background, or an information security background. All those are things that are not traditional in our industry, but are needed to employ the technology of uh, cloud computing. You know, that's another great point. So John, you're recommending investing and then reinvesting in fairly extensive training. In your opinion, what kind of ROI can companies expect? I know that you have a case study from one client in particular that went through social engineering training with you. Literally one week after the training, I got an email saying that they had stopped a $300,000 case of fraud. Well, they were having these 
um, over and over again. So it wasn't a single case. This was a problem that they, they basically eradicated just by training their humans. So you talk about a value proposition. Uh, the training wasn't the fraction of that, and yet they'll get that return over and over. Now it's part of their system. They build it in when somebody's onboarded. That's part of what they do. Uh, there's tons of success stories out there. The issue is we don't, we don't hear about those. We love to see the train wreck, and that's generally what we hear about. Yeah, undeniably, it's often the worst case scenarios that we hear about. Uh, where do you think we're at right now uh, as an industry, Sebastian? Are, are we secure enough for the next phase of cloud-based computing and storage? Honestly, in my opinion, the machine manufacturers and component manufacturers in the material handling industry are actually further ahead than we might all think. Um, what I mean with that is that there's a lot of companies that, you know, in, in the closed rooms have already been uh, employing technologies to make solutions happen uh, of the future. So I actually think that the material handling industry overall is not only ready for that next uh, level, I think we are already in that next phase. And um, with that in mind, what is the, the next important step for companies in our industry is to align our capabilities, to align the, the technological advancement and uh, the available technology with the needs of the customers. I think that is the more critical step. We have quite a few technological capabilities. But what is missing now is the clear understanding of how to put the technology to work and generate sustainable value with it. And uh, a lot of the uh, advancements and the projects that are being done in companies focus mostly on exploring the technologies. And I think as a next step, we really need to make sure that we're not just employing technologies uh, for the sake of its own, but to ensure to generate additional value for our customers, the end users of our industry. And with that in the end, generate additional value and improve the customer experience for all the consumers when they get their packages delivered. That is absolutely right. And as we wind down this episode of MHI Cast, ask yourself, why take on more risk unless you already have a clear picture of what you want the reward to be? John, Sebastian, Jim, thank you, gentlemen, for contributing today. You've done so in such a meaningful way. Appreciate you joining us today. And thank you for listening to this episode of MHI Cast featuring Jim Barnes, Sebastian Tietza, and John Celio. If you'd like to come and see some breakthrough cloud computing solutions, make plans to attend Promat 2023 in Chicago. It happens next March. Learn more and register to attend at promatshow.com. Here at MHI, we never stop exploring new opportunities to help you take your manufacturing and supply chain operations to that next level of success. So thank you for making us a part of your professional development journey.